Well, good morning, church. All right. It's good to see everybody. It's good to worship and sing together. Hey, if you're new, I want to especially welcome you to the Parks Church, to our, our Sunday gathering. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 Samuel. It's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, again, if you're new, this is what we do here at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and we are making our way through First and Second Samuel. And like I told the 9 a.m., yes, it's going to take us probably longer than you expect to make it through all of those, those chapters and verses. Um, and we love the Word of God around here. Amen? Stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word. 1 Samuel chapter 2, I'm going to begin in verse 11 and go all the way through the chapter, so get a drink of water if you need it, all right, because I will at the end. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the, son of e the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in, in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. I think they covered all forms of, of things there. Or <laughs> all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed in a linen ephod, and his mother and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, man will God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in both stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who dishonor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not, there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity 
prosperity that, that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from, from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that, this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. This is the word of the Lord. Well, okay. Um, keep your Bibles open. If you have those First uh, and Second Samuel journals, keep those open because we'll just walk through this passage. Uh, we are a far cry from where we were last week, right? At the beginning of chapter two. If you remember the beginning of chapter two, you can look at it in your Bibles as well. That's Hannah's song. And it was this worship song. It was this heart from Hannah that just overflowed with praise to God. And there's going to be a lot of compare and contrast. And if you remember last week from Hannah's song, she kind of, kind of pitted against each other, rightfully so, this idea of humility and pride. Humility versus pride. Well, here, uh, we're going to see worship continue. However, out of Eli and Eli's sons particularly, we're going to see the worship of self. Last week, Hannah's worship was totally before the Lord. It was about God. It was to him and from him and through him. It, it was all about him. But here we're going to see worship terminating on self, and you're going to see God's response to that misplaced worship. Um, do we need to look any further than verse 12? Let's start there. I mean, it starts with a pretty heavy-hitting statement. Now, the sons of Eli, who are Hophni and Phinehas, were worthless men. Well, why don't you go set the tone, okay? They were worthless. And the source of that statement is what follows. They were worthless because they did not know the Lord. And remember, these are the sons of the high priest Eli. They didn't know the Lord well, that is evidenced by their treatment of God's house, their treatment of God's things. It is clear that they did not know the Lord. And remember where we are in the setting of 1 Samuel, in the context. This is Israel. These are God's people. And particularly, we're in a place, Shiloh. Shiloh was the epicenter of worship. It was where the original tabernacle was. It's going to move from Shiloh to what we're familiar with is Jerusalem, but it started in Shiloh where this is. And now we're here with the priests and they're failing God. They're mistreating the people of God. And in many ways, 1 Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel, the texts are going to draw attention to leaders and leadership. I think leadership is a, is, is a kind of a, a major slash minor point in First and Second Samuel, but it is going to be a point that it pulls out these leaders for us to look at, for us to look at examples, for us to look at uh, leaders in leadership in our own lives, of course, right? And we're all leaders in some sphere, one or another, whether you're, 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 you're at a workplace or you're at a school, you're at a home, you're obviously in a church or a community like this, but it's also calling attention to the kinds of leaders that we follow, 
the kinds of leaders that we find ourselves gravitating toward. And I'm going to bring that up in a little bit, but wanted to make mention of that right now. And the whole nation is in chaos. It's in crisis, right? The end of Judges says that everyone in Israel was doing what was right in their own eyes. And if you can imagine what that's like to live in, oh wait, we can't imagine what that's like to live in, that it was even more amplified here in Israel with Israel. And verse 12 is meant to shock us. It's meant to be one of those hard-hitting statements, the sons of Eli were worthless men. These leaders in the church were worthless. They, they have defrauded God and they were defrauding God's people. But the reality is, I didn't see many of you react to that. And it saddens me. It saddens me because in a day and age, hearing about leaders fail, hearing about leaders falling, seems to be the norm. True? And in some, and this is sinful, in some ways, some of our hearts, maybe even when we see leaders fall, there's a part of us that almost celebrates that. That is sinful. It should grieve us. It should make us sad. But in turn, I feel it's made us numb. But I want to look at some of these warnings and these problems that pervade Israel, that pervade Eli and his sons. There are some roots that have taken place there that this crisis is going right through the house of God. It it might seem as if in talking about this or just reading this on the surface that this is talking about a nation outside of Israel, right? Is this mistreatment talking about the pagan nations? Is this talking about the people who don't know God? No, this is talking about those who are literally called by God's name, Israel. It's very uh, similar to 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14, a text we've actually taught here before, uh, not too far back. A text you're very familiar with, but I want to maybe just define it a little bit better. If my people who are called by my name, this is God speaking, right? Who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. How many of you have heard that verse? You've heard it preached, yeah, you maybe heard it uh, attached, maybe particularly even politically, right? And oftentimes it's interpreted going, yeah, God God will heal America if they will just do this, if the people of America will just do this. This has nothing to do with America exclusively, okay? Sorry to burst some bubbles in here. The first place this actually starts is with the people of God. That here in 2 Chronicles, he's going, no, listen, you God-fearer, you person who, who, who profess the name of God, if you will humble yourself, if you'll return back, if you'll come in repentance to them, guess what? He will heal your land. And so we can fast forward a little bit to the New Testament. He will heal the church when the church comes before God and goes, listen, we've kind of messed this thing up because when we put our fingerprints on it, that's what happens. And so we come before the Lord and we go, Lord, we need you to heal our land. That's talking about the church. This is talking about the people of God. Because listen, then when the church is healthy, guess what God can do? He then begins to heal the land outside the church. But he begins with his people. So it's right here in Shiloh with the priests, with the leaders who are supposed to be faithful. He's going, listen, wake up. And so this isn't a message to all those people who are doing it. No, this is a message to the church. This is a message for us as leaders within a community, within a body. God is going, literally what we see here, they are getting fat. Did you hear that? They are getting fat off of the sacrifices and and offerings that God's people are making. Eli and his sons are taking them for themselves. That's verse 29. And we need to understand very clearly up front that God will not be shared with anyone else. The things and the portions allotted for God cannot be shared with you and me. 
And, and get this, God had set up a system for the priests to be fed, okay? But they are going above and beyond that to say the portions actually allotted for God by God, we're going to take for ourselves. And God has a problem with that. This is very different than 1 Samuel 2.2 in Hannah's song where she says this, and this is a foundational verse that I had you circle last week. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. If that is true, then that is why God sharing his glory with anything or anyone else is absolutely off the table. No one and nothing is like our God. And Eli's sons are a warning to us in many ways. And I, I want to walk through these warnings. I think there are five of them um, that reveal, and, and, and I hope will kind of caution us as a community of leaders um, as we approach the Lord. And the first one is this. There is an air of familiarity with Eli's sons, that these are men who were raised in the tabernacle. They were raised by the high priest. They were raised around the things of God. They were raised around the people of God. They were raised around these sacrifices and these systems and these things that they were just so familiar with. In our context, in, in, in you know, the buckle of the Bible belt, we are around a lot of Christian things, aren't we? Christian language, Christian kind of, kind of talk and speak, and familiarity can begin to kind of creep in on our hearts and our lives as it relates to who God is. Now, I want to pause right there and say familiarity in of itself is not a bad thing. Uh, th there are things that I, I want to be very familiar with in my life. And in fact, God is one of them. I want to be familiar with God's presence. I don't want it to be foreign. I, I want to be familiar with his voice and his word. I want to be familiar with his people and his church. But familiarity has a way of leading us into the next warning that I think plays out in the sons of Eli, right? They knew the things of God. They were surrounded by all the feasts and all these traditions. They're, they're high priest of a father, but it failed to produce a true knowledge of who God is. That's exactly what verse 12 says. They did not know the Lord. They knew the things of God. They knew the things of the Lord, but they didn't actually know him. And this is where confusion can set in for us, is right? Familiarity or proximity is the way I, I put it here. Proximity to the things of God is not the same thing as proximity to God. Knowledge of the things and even being able to speak about God is not evidence necessarily that you actually know God. And so this familiarity leads, and what happens here in the sons of Eli is it leads to a flippancy. So you would ask rightfully the question, how do I know my familiarity is sinful and not good? What does it lead to? For Eli's sons, it leads to a flippancy. It leads to a mishandling. It leads to a commonness in how they handle the actions and their role as priests. The things of God, the worship of God was handled with such a carelessness and such an unintentionality by these sons of this high priest. And in fact, I would argue that Israel, how Israel got to this place was not just with Eli and his sons. How Israel got to this place where it was allowed for a high priest and his sons to actually organize their lives like this was by one thoughtless action after another compounding to the place that we get here where things, the, literally the sacrifices meant to atone for their sins could be so mishandled. If you know your Bible, you can almost track this. Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Israel's track up and down all the way now into the corruption of the high priest. 
The prophet Ezekiel, he says it like this in chapter 22. Prophetically, he says this. He says, her, meaning Israel's priests, have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. That's what's going on here. They've done violence to my name. They've profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. It's all the same. It doesn't matter. Neither have they taught the differences between the unclean and the clean, and they have disregarded my Sabbath so that I am profaned among them. Treating God as common and the things of God as common. When what Hannah has sang about last week that we read and we unpacked was that God is anything but common. He's holy. He's other. He's above. He's transcendent. He's almighty. He's someone we stand in awe and reverence to. How are the sons of Eli handling this? You want to see what pride looks like in real time? Here's what it is. Treating the things of God, treating the laws of God, the commandments of God, flippantly. Is flippancy, let me ask this question to you and to me. Is flippancy something that marks your life as it relates to the things God has asked from you or of you as a believer? What about flippancy and what we put before our eyes? God, that's not a big deal. I mean, it's not sacrifice. It's not Eli. It's a big deal. What we take in through our eyes will form us and shape us. And if we're flippant and unintentional about that, let me tell you, that will lead to a path that ends in destruction. How about flippancy of what comes out of our mouths? Remember the verse last week where it said, let no unwholesome talk come out of our mouths. And I said that unwholesome talk can be prideful things. Some of you are just flippant with your tongues. Slander, gossip flowing out. How about flippancy even, and I know we've brought this up before, about how we enter into this space right here. About how we come into a gathering on Sunday mornings to worship the God of the universe. To lift our voices in song collectively. To open the living word of God. Is there a flippancy to that? Or does that thoughtfulness go to Saturday? Saturday evening, how, how you organize and facilitate your schedules or what you do or what you don't do. And third, as we have to move quickly, one of the things we see with Eli's sons is an entitlement. And this list is growing in um, extreme, if you will. That's purposeful. That Eli's sons were entitled to the best pieces, the best portions of meat, the fat, right? The ribeyes, the fillets, that belonged to them. Why? Because they deserved it. They were the priests. They were the leaders. They're the ones who sacrificed. They're the ones who didn't have this or that, so we're gonna take this or that. We're the ones who work hardest. We're the, we're the ones who actually go before the Lord and atone for your sins, so we're gonna... We're entitled to this. And God says, no. Your entitlement is not justified. In fact, as priests and leaders, one of the things that God was pressing in them constantly over the pages of Scripture is what? Humility. Serving. That their place of honor was because they get to serve the people before the Lord. Which leads to greed. They were selfish. 
taking what was rightly due God and in turn benefiting or giving it to themselves. This is a very fitting example of where the manager, the steward, the one who is responsible, the one who is commissioned, the one who, who, who was literally ordained to do this, says, you know what? I'm not just a manager, a steward. I'm an owner. I own this. So here's what you're going to do, people. You're going to give me the portions I want. It's mine. And then lastly, what all of this leads to, the culmination of all these things of familiarity leading to flippancy, to entitlement, to greed, is exploitation. That is what's taking place here. The exploitation of the sacrifices, the exploitation of God's people, the exploitation, it even goes a little bit more specific here with the women who are serving at the tent of meeting. These sons have found themselves exploiting people. Particularly, God has a concern and a passionate care for those who bear the image of God of himself. I often tell you, does God care more about one thing than the other? Here's what I know God cares most about, image bearers. Does God care if you take a job in Seattle or Orlando or, you know, he's, whatever? Like, yeah, I, I think God cares about that, right? I, I do, and you should pray about that. But what I know God passionately cares about are how you treat other people, how you love and how you serve other image bearers. Do you have a care and concern, especially leaders, especially those of you who have been placed in charge of other people under your care? You say, Kyle, I, whoa, I don't, I don't exploit people. Well, um, let's think about this. Exploitation in its most basic definition is this, mistreating or misusing people for personal gain. Okay, yeah. If you are a leader on any level, this is a warning. This is a warning for us as church leaders. You do not exploit the people whom God has entrusted to you. Church leaders have exploited people, right? That's not a shock to anyone in this room, sadly. Don't exploit them with your power or your position. Listen, exploitation of the church can also take a little bit of sneaky form too, right? It's like, hey, serve, serve, do this, do this for the kingdom, do this for the kingdom. And what happens? I, I've, been in, I've been in the seats too. You get exhausted, and what does the church do? Thanks for your service. Move on to the next. I'm saying this as a church leader to other church leaders in here who might be in here. That is exploitation of the church. Volunteerism is not the pinnacle of the church. Discipleship is the pinnacle of the church. That someone would know and love Jesus and pursue after him and serving and volunteerism is part of that. But burning people out and just churning through people, that is exploitation of people. Now let me go to the other side, okay? Consumerism. Well, I go to this church for this, I go to that church for this, I want this, I want that. That is exploitation of the church. That's exploitation of the church, of the bride of Christ. A body that, that, that is meant to be loved and nurtured from above and from within. Valued, not by what she gives you, but by what you pour out to her because Christ has poured everything out for you. That's the right view of the church. And this is taking place here, remember, at the tabernacle with the high priest. In verse 16, 15 and 16 are just so, they're so emphatic in what takes place. Look at it. And I think this really just sums it up. And it's this scene, and, and if the man, it's, it's this guy approaching 
Hophni and Phineas and going, listen, no, 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 do what you're supposed to do. Like take the fat, burn the fat before the Lord and then take whatever else you want after that. What happens, right, when that's occurred? Let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he says. No, you must give it now and if not, I will take it by force. Woo! This is strong language. And I would say this is what abusive and corruptive leadership will do. They will take things by force. Contrast this to 1 Samuel 2, verse 9, where Hannah is singing to the Lord. She says, not by might shall a man prevail. But then you click down just a few verses in here. What do you see the sons of Eli doing by force, taking it from the people? So you can either give it to me on your own, or I'm going to take it by force. This is not the way of Jesus in any form or fashion for his disciple. Any form or fashion. Exhibit Matthew 26. Matthew 26 is where Jesus is about to be arrested, and you know the scene. Where the soldiers are coming, Jesus has his disciples, right? Peter's like, I'll never deny you, right? Is there. And uh, he comes, and the soldiers are taking him, and Peter does what? Peter takes the sword and tries to take off one of the soldiers' heads, right? To take it by force. Jesus, Jesus is not going. My leader's not going. I'm going to show with this force. And what does Jesus do? Jesus stops Peter after he swings, takes off Malchus's ear. First thing, Jesus heals Malchus, like, my bad, I'll deal with this, okay? Like, he, he then turns to Peter and is like, that's not how we're going to do this. That's not the Father's plan. And Jesus says something really profound. He goes, and if we were going to take it by force, here's what I'd do, Peter. I wouldn't look at you, and I wouldn't look at the other guys. I would call upon the Father who has angel armies to rain them down, and that's the force I'd use because I have the power to do that, but I'm not doing that. Because my kingdom goes a different way. Not by force, but I'm willingly laying my life down. So Jesus goes, my kingdom looks like what? Sacrifice. Woo! That's the leader. That's the leader who is our king. That's the one that we follow. Now my question here, back to something I said at the beginning, what type of leader do you gravitate toward? We're all following these different types of leaders. Like, what leader do you gravitate toward? Right, and I'm not just talking about physical force here, but there's emotional force. There's manipulative things that, from a position, you, you can do to get what you want, ultimately. You can pray on the vulnerable. You can, you can pray on the weak. Listen, the reason that Jesus commands the church uniquely to be about the orphans and the widows and the fatherless, you want to know why? Is because the world, those who don't know him, they will be preyed on and vulnerable outside there. He's going, listen, church, the people of God, you care for them because they won't be cared out there. They'll be marginalized. They'll be preyed on. They'll be vulnerable. But within the church, guess what? They're serving they're loved, they're cared for, and in fact, they're elevated. That's what it looks like to follow me. And then verse 17. There's a word here in 17 that's really easy to miss. He says, thus the sins of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. That word contempt, if you have your Bible or that notebook, you might want to circle that. This means they disregarded the very means that God had provided for salvation. Disregarded it. A strong statement. And that's on the heels of what's about to be introduced 
that thank goodness Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, aren't the only ones in Israel. There's another son, isn't there? There's another son there at Shiloh, Samuel, the boy who was born of a barren woman. He is there now in Shiloh, and it's meant to bring him ever so slightly right to the center of the stage, this bright, shining light. And Hannah and Elkanah, they're there. And, and what's it say in verses 18 through 21? It, 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 it brings this picture that Hannah and, and, and Elkanah, the husband, would bring little Samuel an ephod that Hannah makes. I love this. Like she would make him this garment every year and bring it year after year and just clothe him as now a priest being given unto the Lord. And, and I think this is a point here that needs to be made is that Hannah and Elkanah no doubt saw the chaos and corruption happening with Hophni and Phinehas. The level that it was at, it would have been obvious to them. There is nowhere in the text that reads, what Hannah did was she went maybe after year three or four and said, man, this is a really chaotic place. This place is really corrupt. Samuel, why don't you come back home with me? She never says that. And you want to know why she never says that? Because Hannah did not entrust Samuel, the son, to Eli, the high priest, primarily. Hannah entrusted Samuel to who, primarily? God. So she's going, in spite of the chaos, in spite of the corruption, Lord, Samuel is yours. He's entrusted to you. And now if you are a parent in this place, that should cause us to kind of take a deep breath and exhale. That primarily what we do with our children is we entrust them to who? The Lord. The Lord and go, he's yours, she's yours. And we present them to him and go, Lord, we trust you above all else. That's what we see here with Hannah and Elkanah. In uh, Eugene Peterson in his commentary on this, um, in talking about the clothing that the sons of Eli would have worn and, and, uh, and Samuel said this, clothing can either disguise or reveal our true identity. Eli's sons dressed in their inherited hand-me-down priestly robes. I mean, they would have been, you know, obvious. Looked like priests, but were in fact wolves in sheep's clothing. That's Matthew 7, verse 15. Wolves in sheep's clothing. And then on the other side, you have this little boy, Samuel, in this garment that his mom made, ministering, the Bible says, ministering before the Lord. It says that three times in our text. Where's he found? When these other guys are getting fat off the sacrifices that are due the Lord, what is little Samuel doing? This boy, worshiping, honoring Jesus. And Eli's rebuke comes in verses 23 through 25. And the interesting thing about Eli's rebuke, their father's rebuke to Hophni and Phinehas is this, is that it lacked something. And what it lacked was seriousness. He said, well, it, it sounded pretty serious to me. No, here's, here's what it must have required in a rebuke. Repent. Repentance. You can read in the text yourself, there is no call by Eli, their father, for them or himself to repent. It's more like, why are you doing this? Why are you treating it like this? Back to flippancy a little bit. There is no seriousness handled. Listen, there is one of two ways Eli could have went. Repent, which I just said, or removal. Sons, you're done. You're out. It's over. Cut them off. This isn't just stop doing bad things. Okay, guys? Like, stop it. This was a call, a necessary call to absolutely reorient their whole life and their whole heart to the Lord. 
And Eli, as the high priest, failed to do that. But verse 26, guess what Samuel continued to do? Look at it in your text. Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Does that sound familiar? For those of you that know your Bible, does that sound familiar with any other text? Yeah, Luke chapter two, where it says Jesus as a young boy grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with man. And so Eli has failed to rebuke his sons faithfully. He's failed to remove them Then the judgment of the Lord comes. A prophet comes to Eli and he says, this is going to be the end of your family. Because of how you've treated the house of God, how you've treated the people of God, the flippancy by which you've handled holy things, treating them as common, this is the end of the road for you. He says, literally in verse 29, it says, you have fattened yourself on the choicest part of every offering. The word glory. Do you know how glory is defined biblically? The word glory is defined by weight. It could be defined as heavy or weight. There's a little bit of a play on words here that 1 Samuel's doing. Going, listen, Eli, you have glorified yourself. You've made yourself heavy and not given glory where it's due. God's glory, again, will not be shared. And so we see God call out what will happen to Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. And by the way, what a picture of mercy this is. It may, may be like, your judgment, judgment, judgment. God could have and rightfully would have been totally right in doing so, struck Hophni and Phinehas dead in how they handled certain things. But it was merciful, the extent and the period of time that he has given them. And within this judgment is another picture of mercy in verse 35. And this is where we'll land and it's going to bring us to the tables of communion. It says, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. So within all of God's judgment, you will see this biblically, within all of God's judgments, there is always a promise embedded in it. In every one of God's judgment, there is a promise embedded in it. And here it is. In the face of all this abuse, in the face of all this chaos, God is going to raise up a new leader, a faithful leader, a humble leader, a selfless leader, Who's he talking about? Samuel? Is he maybe talking about David? King David, who's going to come? Is he talking about, here we go, class, Jesus or D, all the above? And the right answer is D, all the above. He's talking about Samuel, the one little boy who's there at the front of this backdrop, faithfully serving for the Lord. He's talking about David, the one in which who would serve as king and the line of Jesus would flow from. And he is definitely talking about Jesus, the faithful high priest who would intercede on your behalf and my behalf all of our days perfectly. As I began to look at this, I began to think about Isaiah 43, 19. And you can leave this up as we prepare to take communion. The word of the Lord here says, behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Do you not see it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. 
It's like that's what God is doing here in the scene, going, listen, I know you see all the chaos. I know you feel it. I know you, you sense all the tension and the dysfunction, but God is doing something new. He's bringing forth this young boy, right, in this doofy ephod to go, I'm going to be the faithful high priest, the humble servant of God. God is doing a new thing where he raises up a king by the way of a shepherd boy named David who gives way to the line of this humble servant who comes way of a virgin born in a manger to say, I'm doing a new thing. Do you see it? And so listen, church, we can rightly acknowledge our world is chaotic. It's chaos. It's confusing. It's full of all these dysfunctions, but God is doing something today in Christ. He's doing a new thing if we'll perceive it, if we'll see it and yield to it. And that's why I love running to these tables every week because it puts Jesus in the right place, right back at the center. He is the thing before us. He is the king. He is the leader that we follow. He is the servant who both exemplified both power and humility perfectly. He's the one who saved us. And God's going, I'm doing a new thing. Do you perceive it? Can you see it? I know it's chaos. I know it's confusing for some of you. The waves of life is crashing against you. But listen, Jesus is still there. Jesus is still the center. He is the anchor that holds and will not let loose. And so that's how we come to these tables and hold these elements. And guys, let's not follow the lead of Eli's sons and treat this flippantly or do this casually. But let's steward this for the glory of God, how he allows us to come in and go, Lord, examine us. Examine my hearts, examine our lives. So our hosts, let's get ready. And I'm gonna pray for us. And we're gonna grab the elements uh, and take them uh, together once we're all served. But let's ask the Lord to help us and to forgive us, to lead us in this time, in this space, in this way where he wants to take us. Father, just as we prayed before the teaching, we're asking that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to feel, even in this moment of communion, where we're coming and we're getting the elements that, hold, that we remember the sacrifice of Jesus with. And so, Lord, I pray against flippancy. I, I pray against just a casualness by which we do this, but let us come in awe and zeal of your grace and your mercy again this morning. And so, Lord, I pray that this walk would be more than just a walk down front, but it would be a confession of our need for you again today. God, give us eyes to perceive what you're doing in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.